All right, so I want to thank you all for coming. It's a really good turnout tonight. That's awesome. Uh, tonight, we're going to be covering the atoning work of Christ, but we're going to cover a couple of other things a little bit anyways as well. Uh, so what we're going to be covering tonight is the work of Christ, so like what he did while he was boots on the ground here on earth, uh, what the cross actually accomplished, and the necessity of the resurrection. So if you're looking for those three points, we're going to be covering the work of Christ, what the cross accomplished, and the necessity of the resurrection. So like I said before we prayed, there's a lot here. So in one session, like this is a Theology 101 class, which means we won't get to cover absolutely everything in all of the depth that there is because that just is impossible in an hour and a half. Uh, and so I did try to work to make sure that we're going to cover the really important stuff that needs to get covered when we're talking about this, and hopefully some details that help flesh that out. For those of us who maybe know what the atoning work of Christ is, that some of those details would help us flesh out our understanding of it and grow in a depth of appreciation for it. But also, if it's one of our first times hearing the language, that we'd actually be able to understand it and make the connections for that first time if, need, if that needs to happen. So, to kick us off, what I want to do is just start, while Jesus was here, what did he do? Um, and so, basically, the way I wanted to start off tonight I'm assuming lots of us grew up in Christian families or, or are familiar somewhat with the Bible, at least with the faces that I recognize. So I was hoping for a little bit of interaction of just listing off what are some of the things Jesus did while he was here as an interactive part. Depends how broad you want it. As broad as you can make it. Well, there was uh, the teachings, the... The teachings, okay. We're going to let some other people answer too. Teachings? Miracles. Oh. Miracles? Okay, so that's really broad. Let's narrow those down. What are some of the miracles that he did while he was here? He walked on water. He walked on water. Feeding 5,000. He fed 5,000, yeah. Revived the dead. Revived the dead, yeah. Turned water into wine. We're going to start there. What else? He healed people, yeah. He cast out demons, yeah. Awesome. That's good interaction. So I'm hoping that for the rest of the evening we get some good interaction like that too because we're going to be, like I said, it's, we're going to try and interact because as you guys are learning, it's easier to remember things if you're actually interacting with the material as well. So we're going to start with turning water into wine. If you didn't know, it's actually the first recorded miracle that Jesus uh, did. And so I'm curious, Andrew preached on it a little while ago, so if you carry sermon notes with you from I don't know how long ago that is now, 52 weeks ago or something like that, if you carry your sermon notes, you might remember, but I'm just curious if anyone remembers, he turned water into wine, but what is the significance of that? Why would he do that? Because we listed off a whole bunch of different things that Jesus did, and without any context, they can feel like just random shots at things that need to happen, and like there isn't much purpose. So what did Jesus do? What was he showing? What was he teaching alongside with turning water into wine? Or was it just a simple act, turning water into wine? It's a little bit of a test, but I'm just curious if anyone remembers. No clue what the um, significance of why Jesus did it, but I knew that like, it was a good thing he did, because supposedly like, at that culture, running out of wine during a party was essentially a massive... Uh, not, it wasn't a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it was a good thing that he did because, like you said, in the culture, it was not a good thing to run out of wine. So replenishing the wine was good. 
It's not quite the answer I'm looking for, but it is a good answer. It is definitely part of it. If not, I'm going to call on Andrew because he's the one that preached it. See if his memory is good enough to remember the details. That was so long ago. <laughs> um, yeah, that miracle is super interesting because John says that, yeah, one, it was Jesus' first miracle, and two, it was how he showed his glory. It was like a sign that he was who he said he was. Um, and I think one of the big things is in that culture, uh, if you read the law, there's a lot of clean and unclean rules, and you had to do certain things to become clean, and a lot of ritualistic things that you would have to do, you know, if you were unclean. And so one of those things was uh, involved washing. Like if you went into someone's home, you had to wash because you were unclean. You washed your feet, you washed your hands. Um, and they had big jars of water that were used for that. And uh, it's really interesting that Jesus uses that water. Uh, he, he tells them to fill up these huge jars of water, uh, which would have been used for these ceremonial cleansing things. And he says, fill them to the brim. And then he turned all of it into wine. And the best wine of the whole evening. But when you think about it, then these people had no more water. They could not use any of those jars, any of that water for ceremonial cleansing. So I think one of, one of maybe not the only reason, but I think one of the reasons Jesus is doing that is because he's coming saying, uh, it's not going to be about clean and unclean anymore. Uh, when I touch you, you are clean, right? Uh, yeah. So that was kind of what some of the symbolic aspect of the water to wine, I think. Yep. Yeah, so this is the idea behind all of the work that Jesus did. So like I said, because there's so much tonight, we're not going to get into every single miracle. I wanted to lay that in front of you guys to hopefully give a good enough example to show that the work that Jesus did from the very beginning of his works was not just a bunch of random things that he did just because they came up in front of him. They were actually with purpose to show and to teach and so that we could learn from them. Um, John, in John chapter 20 even says that he records these things so that we would know that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, and so we're not going to actually cover a whole bunch more because we have, when it comes to the atonement, we have like an absolute ton. Uh, but one of the other things that I wanted to cover with this is if you'll turn to Luke chapter 24 in your Bible. So if you're not familiar with your Bibles, that's in the New Testament. Uh, so the first book of the New Testament is Matthew, then it goes Mark and Luke, and then it'll be chapter 24. And it'll start in verse 13. Um, you can definitely read it for the sake of time. I'm going to loosely paraphrase what happens in this event. But that is where this event takes place. If you want the direct scripture reference or to even read along as I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but in essence, that day, Jesus is traveling and he is traveling with two of his followers. As he's traveling with them, they begin talking. And they're talking about uh, this Jesus guy that they thought was maybe the Messiah, and then he died, and they're really confused, and they don't understand what's happened. Uh, and so Jesus then comes alongside them, and basically to them, after all of the things he did, after all of the law and prophets, he basically says to them, like, you fools, like, all of this is about me. And so then he walks with them through, from Moses through all the prophets. So basically, he would have walked through the Old Testament to show how it's a mosaic, a picture that kind of leaves like, a, it's almost, I've heard it put as like a help wanted poster, as in like there's this position that needs to be filled. 
And he shows how that poster is, he fulfills that. How he is the one who actually is that individual who has come and is the greater prophet, who is the greater sacrifice, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus himself taught, right here, that all of scripture, he was fulfilling those things. And through his works and through his miracles, this is what he was doing during his time here on earth. Another great example of what uh, scripture says that Jesus is coming to do is actually in Isaiah 53. And so it's actually, there's, I've heard debate. I don't actually know. Maybe someone here does. I've heard that this chapter is banned in Jewish synagogues. I don't know for sure if that's just, you know, an internet clickbait title thing. I personally haven't looked into it. I don't know if anyone else has. No? Okay, fair enough. We'll just leave it. Leave that with a massive grain of salt then. Wait, wait, wait. All the other books in the Bible are allowed? Well, I mean, like, of the New Testament are allowed? No, they, they would not be in what they would consider canon. Um, so the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, anything before Matthew. Because you may sound like all the rest of Oh, no. I'm talking about Isaiah 53 now. Oh. Isaiah 53. Uh, so Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Um, but this passage, we're gonna, I'm just going to read it because it is good. And like I said, we're going to be taking time today. So we're going to read it. It basically says what Jesus is going to do. Uh, and he lives this out. So chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. His, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his graves with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and so on and so forth. It's a chapter that explains exactly what Christ came and did. And so Jesus fulfilled all of these things, like I said, through his works, through his life here, and his death and resurrection. Obviously, there's a lot more to that, so I would highly suggest that if you haven't ever looked into it, to look into it. And we can always have conversations after. If you have questions, Andrew and I would love to talk about it. But for the sake of time tonight, I want to make sure that we actually spend a good amount of time on the atonement. So we're actually going to move on from that. Uh, but before we do, I do want to just leave the floor open for if there is any thoughts or questions around the ministry of Jesus while he was alive on earth. All right. So who has noticed that I've drawn a, well, I would say globe, but it's not 3D, it's 2D. Who has noticed that I've drawn an earth or the earth? You may not have recognized it because I am not great at geology. This is Theology 101, not Geology 101. 
So this is just for the sake of having an image. It's not perfect, obviously. Um, what we're going to be doing now actually requires a fair amount of pre-work. To actually understand the atoning work of Christ, it takes some pre-work to understand what's happening here. And so I'm hoping that what we're going to do next is actually going to help build your understanding of why it was necessary instead of distract or take away. Um, and so we're going to turn back to Genesis. If any of you guys are familiar with me, you'll know that that is one of my favorite places to start because it sets the precedent for the rest of Scripture. Um, and there's a lot of uh, patterns in how things are worded and design and stuff that are followed throughout the rest of Scripture and throughout the way God has ordained things to go. So, we're not going to read through a huge chunk of scripture, but what happens in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? This part will be interactive. God creates the world. God creates the world. Kate, we'll say that's chapter 1. We can leave it that broad for the sake of time. Chapter 2, what happens? Is that when people messed up the world? Chapter 3 is when people messed up the world. Nice guess. Chapter 2, what happens? If you need to, you can turn there. It is an open book test. God creates a garden. God creates a garden, yeah. So after having created the world, out of the darkness, he forms the world, forms the waters, takes the land out of the water. Land sits on a hill if it's not in the water, right? We all know that if you have land underwater or lower than water, the water flows onto the land. So you have to have land higher than the water. So you are on a hilltop, so to speak, for the sake of the imagery. He creates a garden. Where is that garden placed? Yeah, which, which region is it placed in? The east. The east, which is called? It is the garden of what? Yeah. And so the garden's name is the Garden of Eden. However... The imagery that's being portrayed here is that Eden is actually like a land similar to what British Columbia would be or whatever you want to imagine, British Columbia, Alberta, certain states if you're from the states. So Eden would have been the outer land and the garden would have been formed within that land, hence the Garden of Eden. And within that garden, what does he create? Yeah, so he creates man, and he takes him, and he places him in the garden, and he creates two trees. Now, my artistic rendition will be flawless. This you can trust as perfect. I'm kidding. Obviously not. But he creates two trees. It's like nuclear bombs going <laughs> they, they were powerful. So, we have two trees. Which, what are the trees known as? What do we call them? The tree of life. The tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Okay, so then we have humans in this garden. And they are in good relationship with God? Yes. Yeah, they're in good relationship with God. What is the role, what job does God give them? What does he bless them with? So after he finishes creating them, he blesses them. This, I think, is in chapter 1. Dominion. Yeah, dominion, to rule, to have authority. And what are we? We are created in the image of God, correct? That also Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, right? So as image bearers of God, we then, as humanity, when I say we, I mean Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve then represented God to the rest of creation and the rest of creation to God in the sense that they were then given part of that authority to then make 
the connection and rule and reign here on earth. I know it probably seems like a long shot what we're doing here right now, and you're probably thinking, why in the world are we talking about this? Believe me, I'm hoping it'll make sense once we get uh, to Leviticus. So, we know something happens, though. What happens here? Chapter 3. Chapter 3, that's correct. Sin. Sin enters the world, right? And so we covered this the other week, so we're not going to go into crazy detail about it. But what happens to Adam and Eve after they sin? They get erased and moved to where? Yeah, they get kicked outside of the garden. And then we have Genesis chapter 4, and what do we see happen there? For those of you who are familiar, we're here when we discuss sin. The Cain and Abel narrative, what happens? Murder, which then leads to what? What does God choose to do to Cain after he murders his brother? Yeah, he sends him further into exile. Right? So this image here, where we would be, is in the dust in the land outside of the good land of Eden, outside of the garden. That's where humanity sits, kind of. That's the imagery that we're left after chapter 4, is that humanity is in the state of living in a world that is not good, is no longer good like God created it. It is tainted by sin. It is not well with our souls. We are not in right relationship with God. We can't even enter back into the garden because there is something placed in the way. What are those things? Yeah, I have a couple of cherubim and a what? A flaming sword, yeah. And so the flaming sword might seem random, but I'm, I'm going to hope that we can all put piece together that we probably all imagine that that flaming sword would probably mean that you'd die if you returned. Swords are generally not seen as something that's like, hey, this is a peace offering, right? Unless you offer up your sword to someone else, but that's not what's happening here. It's the idea that you cannot return into God's holy place the way that you are. All right. Do we have any questions about this model before we move on? All right. So, what is the penalty for sin? Death. Death. That is correct. So that is part of being out here. Um, the ancient Israelites would have viewed, there's a few different words, few different areas that they often refer to as the grave or as Sheol or as some kind of area that signifies death, the land of the, death, land of the dead. Uh, and so one of their artistic ways of portraying this would actually be the desert. Anywhere where there isn't abundant life would be considered you die, right? We live in an area where, you know, you step outside and you see luscious green trees. You can go find lakes, hopefully not Charlie Lake, but... Generally, you can find lakes that are safe to drink from, stuff like that. Uh, and so we don't really fully understand this, I think, as, as North American Canadians, because we aren't used to it. Uh, but in their culture, luscious green lands were not just everywhere. There was a lot of desert space. And so where, what happens in the desert if you don't find water? If you don't find springs of living water in the sense it's safe water to drink, you die. And so that's the logic that is being followed by this. It's not that they actually believed that the desert was specifically the grave or that it was specifically death, but it's a symbolic thing where they would have recognized that it's dangerous. Another place would have been the ocean or the seas because what happens when you're out there if they get out of control? You die, right? 
So that's kind of their view, is that the, the monsters of the deep and stuff like that, they all symbolize this death. And if it's the first time you're hearing it, it probably sounds a little bit wild. Um, and thinking back, I maybe should have cited some sources on this, but there is lots of research to show that this is a consistent thought throughout ancient Israelite uh, belief. Um, and so I feel confident that you guys will be able to find that if you look for it. Um, Depending on your view of him, you might not fully agree with everything, but Tim Mackey actually does a really good job of explaining this in a way that uh, makes a lot of sense, and he does well at citing sources and, and recognizing the ancient context that this is written in. So, we have this three-tiered, the trees will make up another tier. We have this three-tiered space, the cosmic geology, where we have the outer people, where it's the land of death, but then within God's space, we have first tier, the second tier where God has chosen some elect to put them in, and then we have kind of this holy hot spot where the trees are, where life is, right? Where there's a possibility of death if we do wrong, but that there is also the possibility for life if we choose to obey God and follow his will and are in right relationship with him. That setup is going to be important for the rest of the evening. So... We all know that we live in a sinful world, as I said, we covered in uh, the sin week, but off the top of your guys' heads, do you know any scriptural evidence that would say that that is true? We're not just pulling that out of thin air, not just assuming things. I'm sure we can see evidence from our own lives of how we interact sinfully with other people by nature. It's maybe not what we always want to do, but we do it a lot. But what does scripture actually say about that? Curious if anyone knows any verses off the top of their head. Romans chapter 8, yeah. What else? I, I would know the words, I wouldn't know that where it's found. You'd know the words? Are you confident enough to at least give a paraphrase? And then maybe someone can help you with the reference? Uh, let's see here. The heart of man is, is uh, wow, terribly wicked, and uh, you have to pair and cannot be. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Boom. Sweet. That's why it's good to have other believers around. <laughs> For all have sinned and fallen towards the glory of God. Yeah, do you know where that is? Romans. Yes, it is in Romans. Yeah. So Romans chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, explain how we are very, very sinful. But it's summarized in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 where it's exactly what Nicole said, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is an encompassing statement. That's not just like, and so most of all of us have done this. It is a condition for all of humanity. None stand righteous before God. And so all of us would be in this state where we are living out in the land of the death, and we cannot enter back into God's space without something happening there first. Right? And so we're left... Uh, with a condition that needs to be met. If we're going to have an atonement, there has to be something to atone for, so we have that. But then we need to know what that actually is. And so what needs to be done is we need a payment for the wrongs that we have done against a completely and utterly powerful, righteous and just and holy God. We need a way to appease the wrath of Yahweh. And we need a way to wipe out sin's power. Because all of us, and we'll see this in a little bit, can't get back there by our own merit or by our own effort. 
And then we also need a way to reverse this death that keeps happening. We know that part of the curse is that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And that is happening. I mean, all of us probably know people already at this point in our lives that have died. Um, And so we see that around us, evidence that that is true. We know that death is a part of this world and God offered the tree of life before. And so we need a way to get back to this Edenic state that was before. We need a payment for the wrong that has been done. And so even for us, this is a concept that we understand, I think. Like we, we might... Sometimes we might forget of the scale of this, but it's a concept that we understand. We like justice. So I'm sure there's times that if you are a parent or if you are a young enough sibling that you have seen someone take something from another sibling, and how often does that parent say, give it back and you owe an apology? There's something owed because of the wrong that was done, right? And so that's like a really, really simplistic example But that's kind of what has happened here with Yahweh and his good land that he has created for us. And so we have sinned against him and vandalized his good world, the sovereign God who has created everything. He owns it all. And so there has to be something done. We owe something. And that penalty, the thing that we owe, is our life. We are going to die because of the sin that we have committed. There's no way around that. And so there has to be a way that if we want to get back to that Edenic state, that that is paid for and we can be made to be made alive again and continue to live and serve God as a living sacrifice instead of as dead people. So, uh, with that, we're going to... I, I mean, I'm hoping you can see the direction that we're heading with this already, with the language that's being used. But we're actually now going to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. So if you're, again, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, Leviticus is within the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And we're going to be going to chapter 16. So just for a little bit of context, does anyone know what Leviticus actually is? What is the book of Leviticus? What's its purpose? Why is it in our Bible? What does it do? What's in it? I know that was a lot of questions, but... I'm, What is the book of Leviticus, to summarize? Just just going on a limb, there is a lot of laws, like every chapter is named after a law, so I'm assuming this is the law book. There is a lot of laws, you are correct. Does anyone, by any chance, it's just a random thought, does anyone know how many laws there are recorded in our Bible? Like specifically in Old Testament, I should clarify with that. (laughs) 613. So there is a lot of laws recorded in our scripture. Um, And so Leviticus is one of those books where we find a lot of those laws. And so it's actually structured um, in a way that Leviticus chapter 16 sits right at the center of the book. Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. And some of you guys might, uh, uh, stuff like this is always fun to discuss because... uh, it can very quickly sound like a conspiracy theory or where you're just like pulling at strings, you know, one of those dumb things of like a triangle has three sides and three sides, blah, 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 blah. This is something that actually holds a little bit of weight. And so I'm going to explain it because it is important and can help you with other scripture reading as well. Um, So Leviticus is actually structured as uh, on the first part of Leviticus, it starts out with rituals. So this would be things that God has commanded his people to do to act out, whether it's for ritual purity or whether it's uh, sins that they need forgiven, those types of things. 
Uh, the next part of Leviticus would be about the priests and how they are to fulfill their duties, the clothing that they are to wear, those types of things. And the next part of Leviticus is about purity laws. So then, dead center of these things in this order, we have chapter 16 and chapter 17, right in the center. And then, following that, we have a bunch of purity laws. And then we have stuff about the priests. And then we have stuff about rituals. And that makes up the book of Leviticus. Now again, just looking at this, if this is your first time hearing about stuff like this, you're probably like, great. Who cares? Whatever. Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus itself, actually happens to be at the very center of the first five books of the Bible. And so now, again, like I said, it's going to feel like we're pulling out straws. But what the ancient Israelites used to do when they were writing uh, scripture, one of the ways that they would focus your attention on something and actually grab your attention, in our culture we use repetition a lot. This is a form of that, repetition, to get your mind actually thinking in these patterns. What uh, the ancient authors used to do is something called a chiastic structure. There's probably different ways of pronouncing that. I don't, sciastic structure, chiastic structure, something of the sort. And so the idea would be that you start with essentially a triangle to form your idea. And so you would have idea A, idea B, idea C, and this would be your hot spot. That's like the main focus of these ideas. And then following after that thought, you would have a reiteration of B and then of A. And what, what it's meant to do is it's meant to drive your focus towards that center point. Whatever is at that center of those thoughts is really, really important. That's what the author is trying to get you to focus on. So it's not that A and B don't have important things. It's that they are building towards this center thought. And so what the whole of the Torah is doing is building to this center point. That's the imagery, that's what we're trying to do with literary devices here, the way it's actually written. Um, and so yes, the Bible wasn't written by cavemen, it was written by highly intelligent people, right, who knew how to use literature to get their ideas across. So this is what's happening. Leviticus is right at the dead center of the focus of the first five books of the Bible. And so what do we have in Leviticus chapter 16? What's the title of that chapter? in your guys' Bibles. What, we can have a few different, because it might, it might be called different things. I'm actually not sure if you have NLT or NIV or ESV or King James or whatever. What's the title of it? The Law of Atonement. The Law of Atonement, okay. The, the Day of Atonement. Does anyone else have anything different than that? Well, 17 is different from 16. But... Yeah, we're, we're going to focus specifically on 16. The Law of Atonement and the Day of Atonement. That's probably going to be the most common one. Something atonement, the idea of how to operate that. So, this is why today is going to take long. is because we're going to actually read through what this is. Because we need to have a picture built in our minds of what this day actually consists of. So, I would definitely suggest you read along. I'm going to read from the ESV. So, if it's easier for you to follow along reading from the same translation, that's what I'm going to read from. Uh, but you're more than welcome to read from whatever translation you would like. Um, so chapter 16, we need to know what's happening here. So we're going to read it. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that, they may not, so that he may not die. 
For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the, on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time that he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put on the horns and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness. All of the people of Israel, or of all the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. By the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. 
And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute for you to you forever that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either in the negative or in the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. That's a lot. <laughs> Who was actually able to follow? I'm kidding. I'm not going to call people out in the middle of this. Um, so this is going to be what our focus is for today. Hence why we are covering this as the bulk of it instead of focusing on all the miracles of Jesus specifically for today. So what happens on the Day of Atonement? Can Aaron just enter in at any time? This would be right at the beginning of chapter 16. If he has a death wish, sure. So he can, he can only enter once a year, and we're given that date at the end of the chapter. But we cannot enter just at any time. There's a very specific course of actions that must happen on this day. So we're going to walk through them. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to make you guys all skim through to try and find them. We're just going to cover the main ones that are happening here for the sake of time. Uh, so we know we're all covered by sin, right? We are all walking in sin. We have no way of entering this place. So before we cover this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hopefully draw your attention back to what we had that image when I drew the world and we had that three-tiered space, okay? So how many of you guys are perfectly familiar with the layout of the tabernacle? I don't see many hands. Perfect. So we'll go over it. So within the tabernacle... Can you guess how many spaces there are in it? Three. Yeah. So what you have is outside of the tabernacle, you have just the land, right? The tabernacle was built while they were wandering in the desert. And so do you remember what I said about the desert earlier? What did they view the desert as? Death. Yeah, death, a place of death. So outside of the camp, you have death. You have chaos because they don't know what's all out there. It's not safe. It's not where God is w with them, right? And so they built the tabernacle as a place where God can dwell with them. In this area here, uh, in the outer courtyard, anyone could go in there, uh, if I'm correct. I believe I am. For some reason, I'm drawing blank on that. Uh, but anyone within the nation of Israel, sojourners and stuff, could come and offer sacrifices there. Then you had the tent of meeting, which was just before the Holy of Holies. 
And so in this tent, there was lots of imagery that was supposed to remind the priests and the people that entered that room that you were going back to a place where God dwelt. So there was actually a lot of imagery within the tent of meeting that would draw your attention back to the Garden of Eden. So stuff like the menorah is actually meant to recall the tree of life itself. Stuff like uh, cherubims and stuff were placed on the veil itself between the Holy of Holies, right? Like similar to the cherubim at the Garden of Eden uh, that were placed there after Adam and Eve sinned. And so in the Holy of Holies, we have... Does anyone know? It's Indiana Jones movie. They go hunting for it. Does anyone happen to know? The Ark of the Covenant, right? And so the testimony that was talked about in here is actually just a bunch of artifacts that God commanded the Israelites to put in there that would speak of the stuff that he had done for them. And so in between those cherubim, there was no image of God because that's where God dwelt and he commanded his people not to make images of himself. But this setup. Believe it or not, this holy space is where Aaron could only go once a year after doing this process. The tent of meeting was slightly different in its regulations, but the idea of the Day of Atonement is that because God is dwelling with a people that is not good, that is sinful, and cannot please him, uh, they sinned a lot. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you'll be familiar with a lot of stories in the Old Testament of how they messed up. And so even if you read Leviticus, the way, if you'll remember that structure that we went through, often the way Leviticus plays out is God commands Moses to tell the people, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then there's a bunch of stories of how they fail miserably at that. And then it's more God saying, okay, Moses, tell the people to do this and this and this. And then it's more stories about how they failed miserably and do this and, and so on and so forth. You get the picture. They couldn't live up to what God was asking of them. And so what the Day of Atonement is, is it's essentially a day of purification or a day of purging is another way that I've heard it. And so when we talked about sin the other week, did we, uh, do you guys remember, is sin something that just sticks to yourself? Does it only affect you? No. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sure most of you guys probably have seen this in your own life, right? When people sin against you, it hurts. There's effect from it. When you have chosen to sin against other people, there is hurt. There's effect from it, right? It's this land, it, not land, that's the wrong word. We live in this state where we cannot do well with each other or to God, right? And so we are vandalizing his creation with this. As we continue to walk in sin, we are continually doing everything against what God has designed and is not pleasing to him. And so what the Day of Atonement is, is if you remember Leviticus, there's lots of laws about what to do if you're ritually impure or if you cause or if you do sin against someone or if someone sins against you. There's ways to make that right. Um, but then I, we can get into it a little bit later. Not all of Leviticus is about sin. There's a lot of stuff that's just ritual purity. And there is a difference there. We can talk about that in a bit if there is questions. Um, but it's not just about those individual sins. And so the Day of Atonement isn't about cleansing one individual from sin. The Day of Atonement is about cleansing the tabernacle from being placed in a people that are filled with sin and therefore making it so that that sin, in essence, vandalizes the place where God is dwelling with his people. 
And so as a holy God, as someone who cannot sin, who will not sin and does not sin and is without evil in him, he cannot dwell in a place where there is sin, right? If you look at the story of scripture, after the garden, God does not dwell with his people. God will interact with people, but he does not dwell among them, right? Once the tabernacle is there and he has this place where he can dwell with them, that's when he comes and dwells among his people, And so that's where some of this imagery is important of that three-tiered space. He's setting this up again. It's like he's setting up a space where where heaven meets earth and where he can have his priesthood. That's the imagery that's being made with Adam and Eve in the garden is that they're royal priests in essence. And so he has this priesthood then that mediates between himself and the people and the people and himself. He sets that up again here. And so the Day of Atonement... I'm not going to draw it because it would be really hard to erase all the dots, but we have, if you will notice, there's lots of sin that they commit. And so whether it's people's diligence, lack of diligence, uh, with not confessing sin, with not actually going through the rituals to purify themselves of these things, whether it's when they sin unknowingly, there's sin that is defiling the place in which God wants to dwell with his people, right? And he can't have that. And so what the Day of Atonement specifically is, is a day where God purifies his dwelling place so that he can dwell among his people. This has to happen. God, because he is without sin, cannot dwell in a place where there is sin. I've said a lot, so before we keep moving, I just want to give a bit of breathing room. Do you guys have any questions so far? Any reactions? Any thoughts? Okay, we're going to keep moving. If you do have a question or a thought, feel free to please hold up your hand and we'll, I'll do my best to answer it. So on the Day of Atonement, we have a few things that God commands Aaron to do. Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's the high priest. Uh, and so he is the one that is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies with God to, to atone for the sins of the nation. And so we have a list of Details, right? So it's one time a year. Does anyone remember any of the other? I don't know why I'm putting an E instead of an I. One time a year. What else are we told about the Day of Atonement? What sacrifices are to be made? We have the sacrifices that Aaron must make for himself and his household, which is what? A bull, yeah. So the priest must be purified because believe it or not, if you'll remember, Aaron is not without sin. (laughs) We got a really good example of that. As the person who's going to be high priest, he is the one who builds the golden calf for the people to worship. Aaron is not without sin, so he must be purified. What else are they told to do? There is two of a certain kind of animal. Two goats, yeah. And what are the roles of those two goats? What happens with them? They cast lots over them. And the lot falls on which goat, depending on which lot it fell on. But who do the lots determine which goat goes to who? Who are the two characters, or who are the two names that we read there? One lot goes to... Lord. Yeah. Yahweh, and the other one goes to 
Azazel, yeah. I'm sure you guys have questions about that. Does anyone have questions about that? If not, we'll keep moving because that will help us save time drastically. You do have questions about it. All right. I'm curious, has anyone ever even heard that name before? I know the first time that I read it, I was like, oh, hey, that's an X-Men character. And that was about the extent of my knowledge. Has anyone else heard it in scripture or even remember it? No, okay, perfect. We probably should cover it then a little bit. Um, so really rapidly, uh, there's a few different interpretations of this word in Hebrew. Uh, and so what they are, I'm just going to list them for you guys uh, because I personally do not know exactly where I would land on it, but the concepts behind these translations are similar enough that I think it's fair to leave it up to your own personal conviction or to study deeper into it. Uh, but these, I wanted to present at least the four things that they translate it as. So Azazel, one of the ways they translate it, what this word can mean, is the goat of going away. So you can send the goat to the goat of going away. Another way that they translate it would be as a de demonic spiritual being that lived in the wilderness. And so you'd be sending the goat that had the sins of the, the nation pressed upon its head, sent out to this demonic figure who ruled in the wilderness. Another way that they translate it is as a strengthened form of the Hebrew word to go backslash leave. So you could send the goat to leave in essence. Um, and another way that they translate this is a rocky cliff over which they think the goat would have been pushed over when it was out in the wilderness, um, sending it to its death. So I, where you guys will land on that, I, I'm not going to tell you because I personally don't know. I don't, Andrew, have you ever studied it? Do you have a conviction of what it is? I do not. Fair enough. Uh, I've always understood it as either a place in the wilderness, like similar to the cliff thing, yeah. that it was a place that they all knew of, that similar to what you said about the desert, that it just represented like death. Yeah. They wanna, you don't want to go to Azazel, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. Or in their minds, it would have been some kind of demonic being. Yeah. To me, the one that makes the, the most sense when you think of atonement, to me, I just, I would lean more towards a place of death that they don't want to be. Yeah. But like you said, it's not like a salvation issue. What yeah. does Azazel mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think for me personally, I would probably land on, um, yeah, it's kind of the same idea as either a location or a demonic being. Um, it, the Israelites definitely viewed the, the demonic beings as having power and influence over different areas, and so they serve Yahweh. And so it makes sense, in, in my understanding of Scripture, it would make sense that if you are placing the sins of the nation to be taken away from the presence of a holy God, that you would send them to the one who wants them, to somebody demonic, to some being that wants those things to happen, right? Instead of sending them to Yahweh, right? So... Uh, this goat was kept alive that was sent to Azazel, sent out into the wilderness by a willing body. So there's somebody who is in readiness. Um, I'm just going to draw a man for the sake of time. He will carry the scapegoat out into the wilderness. What else? Is there anything else important that you guys can think of? I think I'm going to have to tie a rope around the priest's foot. 
Uh, I can't actually remember right now if that's actually written into the law, but I have definitely heard that, that they would tie a rope in case the priest did something wrong so that they could drag him out if he took too long because they couldn't go in to get him. If he died. Yeah. yeah. If he took too long, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't take him this long last year. Like. I actually am not sure, Phil. I'd have to have to look. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Do you know, Andrew? If it's actually written? The yeah, that they should tie a rope around the leg of I the high priest. I don't think it's actually written. That was just a mistake. In the Bible? Once. <laughs> I think it's kind of in, uh, what do you want to call it? Israelite history okay. that's not in the Bible. Because, yeah, I don't think it's actually written as a thing, but I've heard that lots, too. They, yeah, they used to tie a rope, or I've heard they used to put bells on the bottom and... If the bells stop, they're dead. But I don't think it's actually... Yeah, not to my knowledge. I, I don't think it is. I, somebody who maybe is older than me and had more time in their Bible, do you know? Maybe? No? So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's actually in Scripture, but maybe Google it. Um, do a concordance search. Something. Um, so yeah, that's the main things that we have here. And so now, with like half an hour left... We're going to fast forward all the way to Jesus. Um, and so this is the Day of Atonement. And they had to do this every single year. It is something that they had to do uh, in order to purify the tabernacle. The tabernacle did not end up ever purifying itself, and the people did never purify it itself well enough that it stuck, that it lasted. The people still sinned. The people were not set free from that. The law never set us free from sin. So Paul talks about this concept of not, you know, the law increasing sin. Uh, and we see that with Leviticus, right? Where there's laws, do this, don't do this. And then they don't do that. And then there's more laws and so on and so forth. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. For the sake of time, we're not going to read it. But it is, he talks about the idea that, you know, without the law, they wouldn't have known what sin is. But now that they have the law, sin abounds all the more. It takes an opportunity through the law and continues on. And so... As much as the Day of Atonement did serve its purpose to purify the tabernacle so that God could dwell with his people, there was still something lacking. Like we talked about earlier, that help wanted poster wasn't filled yet. There were still people that weren't living according to God's will, and it wasn't freeing them from anything that they needed freeing from. Enter Jesus. This should be a Sunday school answer. What did Jesus come to do for us? In unison. To die for us. Yeah, exactly. So, we're going to look at what Jesus did under the lens that we have just built. Thinking of the three tiers, right, of God's space. Thinking of the Day of Atonement and the specific steps that took place. And then we're going to put that lens over the work of Christ and then see how Christ actually fulfilled those things. So, before we start doing that, uh, we need to, I, well, we don't need to justify it, but I want to explain why we would even consider to start doing that. Um, and so the Jewish people were fully aware of this law. They were fully aware that a Messiah was going to come, but they didn't recognize Jesus as this individual. And so it's important for us to actually understand why we would recognize Jesus as this individual, why it's important that Jesus is the one who fulfilled this instead of just assuming that he did, right? There's an importance behind understanding the workings of these things. And so 
If you know your Bibles, you're, you'll know that there's actually a lot of places in them where it talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And so, if you'll remember, Isaiah chapter 53, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers, it, that it, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we have in Isaiah, the passage that we read earlier, this Messiah figure is referred to as a lamb. It's the imagery that's used as a lamb. That's one place. Um, John chapter 1, verse 29. uh, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John himself saw Jesus as the fulfillment of this, as God's lamb. In John 1 verse 36, he says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the lamb of God. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 11, uh, it says, And they have conquered him by the blood, him being Satan and sin and death, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation uh, 21, verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 1 Peter verses, or chapter 1, verse 19, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, like the lambs in, Le- in Leviticus, like what we read, And so these are just a few examples of where Scripture refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And that's important to see because if we just assume that Jesus was just a guy that came and he didn't live afterwards or any of those things, it gets really easy then to miss him as the Messiah. We need to know that these, the prophecies, the law and the prophets, as Jesus explained in Luke chapter 24, are fulfilled in Jesus, right? So, Jesus is the true and better Uh, We know that he is the true and better high priest. We know that he's the true and better lamb, the sacrifice, so on and so forth. So, Jesus died, uh, and for the sake of time, I'm really sorry, we're not going to go over all of the scriptures, because I'm going to assume that if we're here at this point already, we've heard scriptures that will point out evidence towards this, as well as we will. Jesus died at the right time. We know all throughout the Gospels, Jesus consistently said, my time is not yet, it's not yet, not yet. And then when his time came, he willingly took the cup. So Jesus, at the right time, not any other time, but at the right time, he died. So he went to fulfill the atonement for us. Jesus is the true and better high priest. We know that in Hebrews, he is referred to as the perfect high priest from the line of Melchizedek. Um, And so in this, Jesus did not need to offer a sin offering for himself. Uh, The high priest had to do that because, believe it or not, he was filled with sin. Jesus was not. So that's why we don't see Jesus sacrificing a bull before he goes to the cross, is because he was sinless. He did not need to purify himself before he would enter this space. So he was sinless. He was the pure priest. Then there is two goats, and if you know the story of the crucifixion, there is no two goats that get strung up on the cross with Jesus. There's not one that gets given the boot out of Jerusalem or anything like that. But Jesus fulfills both of these roles in what he does for us. So I'm curious, before we keep going, I'm hoping that some of this imagery is starting to, like, you're starting to, to, like I said, map your lenses over top of each other for what's happening here. What did Jesus do when he died on the cross for us? 
Yeah. Yeah, he bore our sins on the cross, right? And so it's like that imagery where the priest placed his hands on the head of the scapegoat and bore the sins of the nation, identifying that goat with the sins of the nation, with the people, and sending it out. What else? He cleansed them, them? yeah. His blood, we often talk about his blood, right? Christians, if you, if you didn't grow up in a Christian household, your first time in church was probably kind of weird hearing about how much we sing about the blood of some guy being sprinkled on stuff or put on stuff. The imagery is from Leviticus chapter 16. And so Jesus' blood, in Leviticus chapter 17, it talks about how the blood of a creature is its life, right? And its life, the lamb in Leviticus, the life of that lamb, the blood of that lamb symbolized our lives being put, the death being put in front of God as payment for our sins. And so Jesus' blood does this for us. So if you'll notice, Jesus also dies. He spills blood for us, um, being the one goat who is sacrificed and poured out for us. Uh, But he also gets carried away to the grave. He dies. And so that's where then we have that individual who carries the scapegoat out to Azazel. Uh, in your New Testament, in the Gospels, you'll see an account of a man who talks to, uh, oh my goodness, why, why would this name? Pilate, yes, thank you. Uh, who talks to Pilate and encourages, we need to take this man down. And he becomes in charge of taking Jesus out, further out of the city, to the grave, to the place of death, to Sheol. Effectively, then, with Jesus bearing our sins on the cross, being carried out into the land of death as, the, as that scapegoat, right? And so we have the fulfillment of that. We also have the fact that Jesus appeased the wrath of God. God poured out his wrath onto Jesus, right? And so that was fully satisfied when God did that to Jesus. Uh, and so that is why that work, when Jesus is on the cross, he can say it is finished. With all the works that he did with his life on earth and then the work on the cross, he can say it is finished because this, the day of atonement was fulfilled completely and perfectly. There was no more need for that. And so if you'll know, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the, tabern- in the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that that space, that this, this line that was made by the, the flaming sword or by the temple curtain was no longer. Jesus removed that so that we could enter in to God's presence freely without having to worry about whether or not we're doing it right, without having to worry about whether or not it's that one perfect time of the year. So Jesus did this for us. And so the other thing is that then we, through this, become the dwelling place. If you fast forward into Acts when we gain the Holy Spirit, we as the body of Christ become the dwelling place of God. And so that's where then the Day of Atonement gains, uh, I would hope for us Christians, we can see the weight of that. If we as sinful humans, who would not even stand alive in the presence of a completely holy God, if our sins are paid for and we're purified and the wrath of God is appeased and we are made clean then it would make it so God can dwell in and with his people. And we would then fulfill the role where we are the new Eden, in essence. I'm using artistic language. We we serve as the temple of God. I've just spewed a lot of information on you guys. Um, And so whether or not the silence is awkward, I want to give you guys a little bit of time to just sit and digest. If there is questions or comments, I want to leave some time now to be able to 
talk about those things. If there's anything that I said that you want me to repeat or that wasn't clear uh, or just need more, like to, it to be said again so that you can process it, now's your chance. Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? When the Day of Atonement, it's a bull and a goat. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, so, for one, the bull was the sacrifice for the priest, um, and so because Jesus was sinless, there isn't that need for it. So, I I would believe that that's the reason why he's not called the bull is because there just simply was no need for that sacrifice. Uh, and then, as to why he's called the lamb. Um, Jesus chose Passover as the time for this to happen. And during Passover, that's another place that we could read. I don't know for sure if we have the time to dive into it a ton. But it was a Passover lamb whose blood was shed. And so what scripture often does, what the authors do, and what God has done throughout time, is he often actually layers the elements that we're looking at over top of each other. So not only is this the Day of Atonement, this is also where Jesus acts as the Passover lamb. It's so on and so forth, right? So that's, I believe that's where that imagery would come from instead of being called the goat. Um, he is the greatest of all time, but it's not, not the imagery that the authors would have been familiar with. So um, that, that would be my explanation for it. I don't know if you have a different one or if you have a different oh, line of thought, but. Because I just thought like some, as you were talking, we might hear like, wait a second, Jesus is the lamb yeah. of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not the goat. goat. Yeah. But you're right that this is why it's just mind-blowing how Jesus fulfills literally everything in the Old Testament. Yeah. So it's not just, oh yeah, he is our atonement, and he is the high priest. Oh, he's also Passover. Like, yeah. And I, you, put, you put it well, that it, I forget how you just worded it, but it's I, like all of these things superimposed on Jesus, for lack yeah. of a better. Have any of you guys seen those, like, do you remember the old projectors that you used to have in school where you had, like, the clear sheets yeah. and you could draw on them? The, the way I picture this, just mentally, it helps me wrap my head around it. It's like you have, like, a ton of those sheets that are perfectly clear, but there's only a little element of each of the design or of the full design on each one of those sheets. And so when you slide all of those sheets together and perfectly align them, you get the picture of Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament is doing, is it's, it's giving us piece after piece after piece, and it's not full. It's, a, it's an image of what's to come, but you can't quite tell what the picture is. You can tell that there's something that's going to be made, but when you slide those all together and align them, that's when you can see Jesus, the Messiah. And so that's the image too. Is you, One of these sheets is the Day of Atonement. Another one of the sheets would be the... Passover, and so when they get aligned, that's where you get in the New Testament where you have the different language used to describe who Jesus is and what he's done. Sort of like those art pieces where it's like the random objects hanging in the air, but when you shine the light on it, there's yeah. a yep. duck or something. Yeah, that'd be another great example to explain it. Phil, I saw your hand go up. Okay. Yeah, any other thoughts or comments? The line of Judah. That, yep, that would be another example of one of those sheets being put in to fulfill the picture of who Christ is. Okay, 
I know that was a ton of information. We're coming up closer and closer to the end of our time. Uh, and so what I want to quickly do, uh, I recognize information like this takes time to digest. Uh, so I would definitely, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you'll take time to, to pray about it uh, and spend time meditating on the word of God and not just the words that I've spoken, but actually reading scripture and, and looking for yourself and, and um, that you'll see these things. Because I think it, it helps us as followers of Christ to actually understand the weightiness and the reasons why God did what he did and why we needed him to do what he did instead of just as Christians being like, oh yeah, he died for our sins and leaving it at that. To actually understand this, I think, brings depth. And then even then, as followers of Christ, after we become followers of Christ, it, it, drives, that, uh, it drives us to then act on these things because we feel that weight of our sin and the amazing grace that God has shown us through these things. So that's my hope and prayer is that you guys will move from here and, and continue to meditate on the, the mysteries of God that he has shown us through his word. Um, but the last thing that we want to cover quickly, obviously, uh, is the resurrection and why it was necessary for the resurrection of Jesus to happen. Um, and so I just have a few points that I'm going to point out. Um, Andrew, if you want to add, I'm more than willing for you to add at this point, because I know that you uh, have done a lot of research into this and, and are passionate about this. Uh, but some of the reasons why Jesus had to continue to live is that the description of the Messiah, uh, to start us off, is one of a king everlasting. Um, so had Jesus just died and done the Day of Atonement stuff and never come back, he could not be our king everlasting, Right? So that is one piece that's really, really important. And, and Jewish people often get really stuck on this. Jesus died, and he didn't, he didn't fulfill the law and prophets in the way that they thought he would. But he also died, and so they would say that you can't have a dead king. So the fact that Christ returned and is living now is incredibly important to the uh, prophecy that the Messiah would be a, a king eternal. Um, another reason why it's important that God uh, raised Jesus from the dead would be that, um, sorry, I just have to look at my notes, uh, that he has a resurrection body, so it would make him the firstborn of the new creation that we are called in the New Testament, uh, and so it also gives us uh, assurance that we will have resurrection bodies, Right? So when we die and we are raised to life, we will have new bodies. Scripture talks about that. And Jesus is evidence of that because he was raised uh, from the dead. Another reason that I, I personally believe this is important uh, would be that it shows that we are to serve then as followers of Christ. If we are to live the life that he has called us to and pick up our cross daily, it means serving others unto death. And I don't just mean like... Um, I don't just mean that, you know, okay, now we all go have, have to go out from here and find someone to take a bullet for. What I mean is that if that is what you're called to do by God, that we would do it, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would love God and serve him in this way, but also that no matter what God calls you to do in your life as ministry to him, that we would do that willingly as a part of this new creation, as priesthood that God has designed us to be as humanity, that we would live that out then, serving God to the rest of creation and also uh, showing people who God is through our service. Um, it also shows that Jesus, before his resurrection, was subject to the things of this world, like getting old and getting sick and getting, you know, living life. 
And now that he is in a, a, a new body, it shows then that we, he was subject to those old things, and now with his resurrection body, he is subject to eternal life, just as we will be when we are raised. So yeah, those are the main reasons that I had pointed out. Andrew, I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head that you're thinking of. Um, yeah, maybe two thoughts, and then other people can jump in too. I think the resurrection uh, vindicated Jesus, because if he had just stayed dead, then everyone would have said, oh, he was guilty. Mm. But the resurrection was God showing, no, Jesus was innocent, yeah. he was vindicated, Yep. Um, because he was sinless, yeah. right? He had committed no wrong. And then actually just the connection to the atonement, if you think about what the high priest did, right? He would go into the Holy of Holies, and then we're told that then he comes back out. Yeah. And you can, yep. it's, not, it's not explicit in Scripture, but you can assume that everyone kind of went, oh, thank goodness it worked. Yeah. He's alive. Yep. The atonement happened. Right? Yeah. And so if the high priest never came out, then it would be, oh, he messed up, he died, our sins aren't atoned for. Yeah. Uh, and so it's similar with Jesus. He walks out of the grave, and that was kind of a stamp of, hey, it worked. Yeah. Uh, your sins have been atoned for when yeah. you trust in Jesus. So it was, I see a real parallel there too, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Where that's why we celebrate, okay, he's alive. It worked, yep. for lack of a better term. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, any other thoughts or questions? Because I, I recognize it's a lot uh, to cover all the way from Genesis through Leviticus through <laughs> into the New Testament, into Revelation. It's a lot. But I just, yeah, want to leave space if you guys. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, then Satan would have had victory. Yes. Whereas now Christ defeated Satan. Yes. By being raised from the dead, and there again we have our victory yep. in Christ. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah, and that's even something that is prophesied of, uh, promised by God in the garden, right? We see that he promises that an offspring of the woman will come and step on the head of the serpent while being bit, but he will be victorious over it. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. Amen to that. So good. I think the thing that just hits me the most, like this is mind-blowing. <laughs> Because you see, like, the plan of God throughout history, and nothing can thwart God's plan. Yeah. And, like, thousands of years before Jesus came, there's all of these symbols and rituals and things and the, the temple and, like, everything. Yeah. That then Jesus comes and... You can't just go, wow, that was a great coincidence that that happened. Like, yeah. you just, for me, it just, it boggles my mind to see God from the very beginning being like, I'm going to work out my plan of redemption. Yeah. And when Jesus says, yeah, everything, everything in the Old Testament's about me. And then you read back and you go, yeah, he's not lying. Yeah. Everything's about him. Like, it's, yeah. So stuff like this, I, 
you can sit in the silence and hopefully it's because you're like, oh my goodness, God is amazing. Like, this is yeah. incredible. That yeah, amen. He planned this out. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so even then, the, the idea that God, through his sovereignty, allowed humans to write scripture in a way that the first five books of the Bible, their, their focus point would be the Day of Atonement. Yeah. Within the first five books of the Bible that the Jewish people are familiar with, and we're hopefully familiar with, um, the, the fact that the Day of Atonement is the center of that, the focusing point, and then to know that as followers of Christ, his atoning work is the focus it, to me, that's something, I, I don't know, maybe it, others don't see it the same, but to me, that's something that just blows my mind, that from the very start, it's something that God knew was the focus, and it was the plan, like you were saying. And even Salvation Day for Gentiles as well, yep. is referred to. Uh, something I was thinking about, is there any, in the atonement picture, I guess, is there any mention or any of it alluding to that uh, saving of Gentiles as well? Or is that, because, I, because that's obvious, it's clear that that is the case. But yeah. Is, so is it in that atonement picture at all? To, uh, the example that I can think of is specifically that God commands Moses uh, that it is a Sabbath, it is a rest, it is a holy day for both sojourners and the people of the land. So sojourners would have been people from outside of the nation of Israel that had come into the nation of Israel. So that would be where I would draw that connection, is that it is for anyone who is within the nation of Israel, who, who is within God's chosen people, whether you are from outside of that people and grafted in, or whether you are, uh, what's well, not naturally, but you get the idea. If you are of Jewish descent and you're a Messianic Jew, then that would be for you as well. That, that's where I would draw those connections, but... That's even, like, because Jesus was rejected by his people, like, through that, yep. it is offered to everyone else. Yeah. And, and I think Jesus did allude to it and mention it as well, but the disciples were the ones who when he did it, he commanded them to go through it. Yeah. So it almost that, I, I guess the actual reaching out to Gentiles was, Jesus was with them, spent time with them, even that the woman who, um, he said, would have been direct things to um, <laughs> He, yeah, he was with them and he, like there's, it's in there, but the disciples were the Yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of laws within the Pentateuch as well uh, about grafting in people from the outside. So it's not, a, it's not actually a concept that's at all foreign to Scripture that Gentiles or people from outside the nation of Israel would be brought in. I mean, even Abraham himself wasn't a Jew when God chose him and brought him in to his chosen people, so. All right. I think we're going to leave it at that for tonight. Um, obviously, with anything that we're talking about, but I especially know tonight was like a lot of stuff to think about. If you're... If you have questions or comments or responses during the week, feel free to reach out to myself or Andrew. 
Uh, we'd love to answer questions that you guys have. Or if you see something and want to share, if as you're studying the word, you see something and you get excited about it, share it. It's, it's fun to share things that you're learning about in scripture. Um, so to close us off, I'm just going to pray really quick. Uh, and then senior youth will head upstairs. But the rest of you guys are free to... to Come and go. I don't think we'll be downstairs throwing dodgeballs today right after, so you should be safe this time to stay and chat. Uh, so, Father, thank you for today. Um, I want to thank you so much for the work that your son did on the cross. I want to thank you that uh, it is finished. We do not have to do anything of our own strength or out of our own merit to earn salvation, uh, but that you are faithful and just to forgive us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Um, Lord, I pray that as we go from here tonight, that the truth of your word would just sink deep into our hearts, um, that this wouldn't just become head knowledge where we just, uh, you know, in one ear and almost out the other right away, but that this would be something that helps flesh out our understanding of your, your picture of love and, and who you are and your grace and your mercy and your justice. Um, and so, Father, I pray that from here, this would also spur us on then to actually love others and to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Um, Father, I pray that if there was anything said that was confusing or that shouldn't have been said, that it'd fall on dead ears. And Lord, I also pray that, um, yeah, you would just have our hearts soft to what you're going to be doing in our lives here and the next part of our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.